Ladies and gentlemen, we are live with Leland Sklar. And if you don't know who he is, well, you should because he's a very pace player. He's played on over 2,000 records. Uh, Bill Collins, Toto, and James Taylor are most notably the, the, the bands he's actually been on stage with. Um, welcome to the show, Leland. Thanks for coming out. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, man. I'm, I'm excited uh, to hang with you. And it's, uh, it's a great, it's an honor to speak with you. Uh, meet me for coffee. Uh, Good afternoon to people here in Ontario, Canada, and good morning to everyone out on the, on the West Coast. Um, yeah. yeah, I got my coffee here, nice Yeti, uh, <laughs> full of uh, nice black coffee. I thought I'd do that instead of spilling it all over my desk today. So, um, well, you got an awesome, awesome event coming up on March the fourth. It's next Thursday on Fan Room Live. Let's talk about that. What a great opportunity to engage with fans, um, get people to hear. Uh, stories that you've never heard before about you know james taylor toto phil collins in a different perspective eh? yeah i'm excited about it i'm I'm just starting to get details about this you know figuring out what it's all about um but i really enjoy interaction with you know with fans and uh and just the community at large and and so i think it's it's going to be a lot of fun and I'll, I'll try to make it interesting and answer as many questions as I possibly can. I'm totally open to uh, the thing I've always enjoyed most, like when I do clinics or master classes, is the, uh, the Q&As. You know, I, th that's where things really get interesting. I mean, you can sit and play and, and that gets just so far. But when people have, you know, these questions that they've always thought about and suddenly they can ask them, it, it's pretty cool. So I'm really excited about it. It, it also helps things go a bit smoother for you, especially if you're a guest speaker or a guest musician, because if people ask the questions and you're booked for, you know, an hour or two, it actually fills in the time. Yeah. Uh, I know many times I've been in, in front of people speaking and, you know, I have an hour to speak and tell them what, what's going on or the, do the presentation. And, and if it's not, if it wasn't for engaging people in that conversation or getting them to ask questions, it doesn't stretch it as long sometimes because it can be an eternity. <laughs> it, it really can and yeah. you know fan room live is an awesome platform for many people who want to connect with celebrities and and rock and rollers such as yourself and um i'm really happy to be an affiliate of them uh you can pick up your tickets at fanroomlive.com uh it's gonna be an amazing event that's next thursday march the 4th uh leland sklar and uh, you've seen him on this show. You're going to see him on many other shows. And he's really, really popular amongst the uh, session producers uh, around the music industry. Um, let's talk about uh, yeah. you breaking in to the session work. Uh, I know you, you're, you're very highly in, the, in demand uh, for lots of people. They actually want you to play on the record. Um, how'd you start? Well, I, the, the pivotal point in my career uh, came in 1970, when um, late 69, 70, where I was in a band here locally in Los Angeles, and our drummer had a friend named John Fishbeck, who owned Crystal Recording Studios here, and he did like Stevie Wonder's songs in the Key of Life and uh, lots of uh, great projects. And he used to come and hang out at our rehearsals. And at one of our rehearsals, he brought a friend of his, uh, an old friend of his, who had just gotten back from England. And it was James Taylor. And nobody here really knew who James Taylor was. And he hung out with us at our rehearsals. Well, he got offered a gig at the Troubadour here in Los Angeles. And 
think he needed a bass player for the gig. And he remembered me from this rehearsal and they tracked me down and asked me to play this gig. And I thought it was going to be one gig and it turned into the rest of my life. So it's, it's, it's amazing how these things can happen to you. And, um, but I had never been in the studio before, except in 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 the band in the band I was in, Wolfgang, and we cut some demos, and that was my entire studio experience. And then overnight, I suddenly was an in-demand bass player because everybody was starting to look at James Taylor as like this new vanguard uh, of a new movement in music, and and we were very fortunate that Peter Asher, who managed and produced James, insisted that our names appear on the on the album. And so when people like Jackson Brown and all these different artists would think about their career, they would look at James's record and go, well, hell, if those guys are good enough for James, let's hire them. And, uh, and the next thing you know, I mean, I was doing four sessions a day, six days a week. And uh, you really, we were learning on the job, how to craft sounds, how what the studio etiquette was. I was well aware of the Wrecking Crew, and the you know the generation of players before us. And I, once I started working, I worked with a lot of those people, Hal Blaine and you know all, all of them. But uh, it really was kind of an accident, you know, the whole thing. It was really just being having James come to a rehearsal of a band I was in, and and we hooked up and. It, it literally changed my life. I, it's so incredible. You've played in over 2,000, you know, records. Yeah. Um, I guess you can, you can count a single as a record because you've gone in there to actually record it. But um, when, when you, you walk into a studio to do session work, mm-hmm. do they say, I want you to play it this way? I want this to sound this, this certain way? Or how do you, how do you drop a, a bass track on a, a brand new song? Is there direction? Or? Um, it's different every single day. Some days you go in, there's absolutely nothing uh, planned ahead of time for you. And you maybe sit down with an artist who's playing guitar or something and they play their song. And then you go and sketch out something for yourself, you know, just in terms of the structure of the song. Other times I go in, there's full charts uh, to everything. Um, it really, my entire career um, is predicated on the individual song. And this and the the requirement of each song can be very different. So that's one of the things that keeps it interesting to me after all these years and all the songs I've played on is that literally every time you walk in the studio, you're going to have another experience and uh, and you respond to that. And that's really kind of what the old saying goes, it's kind of what separates the men from the boys. Um, Once you really have understand that the, the dynamic of studio work then you go in and you listen to whatever's going on and you address it on an individual basis because the variety of things i mean i'll i'll be doing i I could be doing metal one day i mean i i I remember doing i think i was doing um you know something like reba mcintyre and then i went from that to do billy cobham and did spectrum with billy cobham so it runs this you know incredible gamut of genres and uh, and each one's approached differently. And what do you what do you attribute um, like your success to? Like do you, like being able to be open minded, to be more uh, able to 
is is, is that something that that you have to be going into a different uh, situation, especially if you're recording four songs uh, from different genres uh, in one shot, pretty much every day? Yeah. Um, is that is that something that you have like you just go in with an open mind or do you, do you get to practice or do you know anything about the song beforehand? Uh, generally, you know nothing about what you're going into. You don't know the um, style. You don't know the genre. Um, it's it's pretty rare that uh, you almost never hear anything in advance. So kind of when the session is happening, that's the first time you're hearing any of this material. And um, but you, you, you learn. I think the most important thing is that I found for me personally, and, and, and what works for me may not work for somebody else, because this is really a subjective business. Um, but I really kind of listen to a song and before I start playing, and I listen to it and kind of think about what does the song want from me? How can I con you know, contribute to this and make my part meaningful and supportive? But you learn real fast that you don't bring, you know, like a big ego to the studio because it's not about you. They may be hiring you because they know things you've done and they love the idea of having you on the album because there's creds and credibility to having your name on their album and all that crap. Uh, but when you show up, you you basically, you're hired help and, and, and you look at the job that may be done and you do the job the best you can. And uh, I always tell people that all my ideas are etched in mud, you know, because I, I, you really have to be malleable uh, in this. You, you can come in with an idea and the producer or the artist may go, no, nah, I really don't like that. Can we try something else? And rather than being defensive, thinking, hey, man, that's my part you're talking about. You go, well, let's let's work on it. And uh, you want at the end of the day, you want you want the artist more than anybody to be happy. You know, it's their project. Oh, absolutely. And when you when you get into those situations, do you take like three bases with you, like a, a five string, a four string, or maybe a backup as well? Yeah, um, I, I've got my normal uh, arsenal is I have a base that's that that's been talked about for years and years and years that we built back in 1973 that I call Frankenstein because it was never really an instrument. It was pieces that we put together, and uh, it and it. And it could have sucked, but it turned out to be the best bass I've ever had. And it's on probably, I would say, 85% of everything I've recorded since 73. But I'll take that. I, I have a signature model with Dingwall basses out of Canada. And um, they're up in Saskatoon. And, um, and that's my five-string preference. And that's my main road bass. Uh, and then I have another signature model with Warwick. That is a four-string, uh, a chambered kind of semi-hollow body bass. And between the three of them, uh, they cover pretty much everything I would need. If, if I think I need, like I might need a fretless for something, I'll bring a fretless with me. I have a Warwick fretless. Um, but I've done some projects where like I've, I've, I have a Hofner, and if that seems like the, the perfect bass for something, I'll bring that otherwise. Um, if I kind of know a little in advance what I'm going into, like I did B.B. King's 80th birthday album and I used my Hofner on it and, and stuffed it full of foam rubber and made it sound like a funky old upright. And uh, and it worked perfect for for playing with B.B. So, you know, it's it, it, you kind of just feel it out and see what see what's what fits.
And, and you've got man is a mandolin frets on yeah. the, the Frankenstein or all all the all, all my basses have mandolin frets on them. And and the reason I have those is came from the Frankenstein bass. Um, the the neck on that bass was a sixty two precision neck and i had a neck i didn't have a body or anything like that somehow i don't know how the hell i found it you know must have been dumpster diving or something and found a found this neck um but my preference is jazz bass neck and not a precision bass i like the profile of it so john carruthers who was the repair guy at westwood music which was really one of the main music stores in los angeles that all the guys hung out at um i talked to him about building a bass and in order to do the neck over, we reshaped the neck into a sixty uh, into the sixty two jazz profile. In doing that, we had to pull the frets out. And I was walking around his shop, and looking, and I saw this fret wire hanging on the wall. And I said, "What's this?" And he said, um, "That's mandolin wire." I said, "Let's use that." And he said, "Oh, it's not going to work. It's you know, it's too small." I said, "Look, let's try it. If it sucks." I'll pay you for another refret and we'll use bass frets on it. Uh, it turned out to be the best decision I ever made. Uh, and people said, man, they're going to wear out fast. Well, we built that bass in 73. Uh, I've used it on thousands of recordings and I'm on my third refret and I play hard. So they, they last. But the thing that's beautiful about them is you can ease up your your tension while you're playing and you can really allude to almost fretless with it because the frets are so small on the bass and a ton of bass players have played my bass and they went out immediately and had their basses redone in mando frets and and both signature model basses the dingwall and the warwick both come with mandolin frets on them it sounds like you're a trendsetter well you know this works for me you know some guys might absolutely love you know, big jumbo frets and, you know, it, it's all different, but for, for my needs, it, it's, um, it, it just suited me. I, I, it, it, the sonic of it, the feel of it under my, cause I came from upright. I was a string bass player and to have something on the neck that really feels like it's almost non-existent. Uh, I found very appealing. And, and, and you, and you began, um, by the way, I want to give a kudos to a uh, hello to the guys from Dingwall awesome fan frets on 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 your bases they sound amazing i love it man it they're, they're, so great. their bass is so good man they're just the b string is to die for uh because of that the fan fretting yeah there's there some bases where like the 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 b string it's like almost like blowing air and there's no really good tone on it yeah uh, i know dingwall has some very very good tone on their on their their b string and some of the models that i've tried i've always yeah. wanted to buy one but um unfortunately i'm i'm a bit of a fender guy i, I buy uh, japanese fenders and they, they work for me um and yeah. you know I, I love it you know i've got a i've got a mexican you know road worn jazz bass and i love it you know i mean instruments are instruments i've got the few that i that i tend to work with in the studio, but I've got a few other bases that, you know, I've, I got rid of a ton of instruments over the years. Um, I've got them in most hard rocks and, and, um, friends of mine, if their kids wanted to learn bass, I would give them a bass. Um, and I would say, look, it would be nice for them to start with a decent instrument. And the, the only predication for me would be, um, if they decide they don't want to do it anymore, I want the bass back. If they decide they're going to stick with it, they can have the bass. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 
it's a, an amazing gesture by you. Obviously, you're able to acquire so many, so much a musical instrument um, in your house. Where are you going to put it all, right? Um, but well, and you've, you've got two hands and a finite amount of gigs, and it doesn't do the instrument any good to be sitting in a closet. You know, so better to get it in the hands of somebody that's going to give it a life. There were there were uh, many basses in the past that I've been able to play. Um, the Fender, I I kind of went away from. I went to an Ibanez body was was a five string. It was nice and light, mm -hmm. uh, and it was great for playing on stage because I didn't feel like I was holding like a hundred pounds on me. But yeah. now <laughs> I really feel that the Fender um, it holds its weight. I know it's heavy, but it sounds great every time, especially with active pickups. It just yeah. sounds great. Um, you've played a lot of legends um, and, and recorded with many as well. Uh, I know back in the, the one band that you were part of uh, called Wolfgang, um, you were able to open for Led Zeppelin, I heard? The very first time we ever walked on stage as a band, not we'd never even played a club. The very first gig we ever played was opening for Zeppelin at Winterland in San Francisco. <laughs> it's like, you know, wow, you know, and and the band was great. I mean, we we totally held our own on that show. The, the you know, people came back and said, "You guys are unbelievable." We had a monstrous singer, Rick Lancelot. Um, great band. I mean, it was just a great band, um, and and we were called Wolfgang because we were managed by Bill Graham. And Bill Graham's real name was Wolfgang. And how do you suck up better to a manager than to name your band after him? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I any, any better way, to be honest, Leland. Yeah. yeah. There, there, there are many, many things that you've accomplished in your career. Is there anything left? Oh, every day. Yeah, I, lo I love working. Uh, I just like day before yesterday. I mean, the, the, the hard part has been this past year, certainly like for everybody with the pandemic where, you know, a year's worth of work just evaporated immediately and, uh, and finding things to do. And the day before yesterday, I was actually in the studio for like the third time in a year. I've been doing stuff remotely at home, but we were actually in the studio doing a Japanese artist named Mari Hamada. And it was just myself and Greg Bissonette, uh, doing bass and drums. And, uh, it was thrilling to be, we both looked at each other and said, God, do we miss this? It's just heaven. But I'm, you know, I'm working all the time at home. I'm talking right now to, I'm doing a track for Julian Lennon and Ian Pace from Deep Purple has been sending me tracks to do. And um, I, I'm, you know, I'm busy with, you know, things, but as far as the future goes, my focus on the future right now is I'm in a band now called The Immediate Family. And it's the guys I've been with for 50 years for the most part. It's Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, Waddy Wachtel, and Steve Postel. Steve is the youngster in the band. He's came in, uh, I've known him about 15 years, but literally I started working with Russ and, and Danny with James Taylor on the very first gig I played with James was with them. And uh, we are having the best time with this band. We got a, our third EP is coming out. We have an album that was supposed to be out in November. Uh, that needless to say, we're holding on to it probably till summer. And Denny Tedesco, who did the Wrecking Crew movie, which is one of the great, you know, music, you know, documentaries about the musicians of the late 50s through the 60s, is doing a documentary film called The Immediate Family about us. And uh, so there's lots going on. And um, and I'm, you know, I, 
it's weird. You know, I'll walk by a mirror and I'll go, who the hell's the old dude in the house? Who got, who let him in here? But in my heart of hearts, I still feel as excited about what I'm doing as I did when I first walked in a studio back in 1970. So. And you I, love touring, right? You love touring. Oh yeah, man. It, to me, that's, that's heaven right there. And, uh, and we'll, we're, we, we're waiting to hit the road. I mean, we've, we've got stuff in the book for the end of the year. Um, depending on the safety factor of it. I mean, I, I'm getting my second shot tomorrow. Everybody in the band uh, is pretty much getting their second shots so we can create our own little bubble and at least start rehearsing. And we're fortunate that we have a label called Quarto Valley Records, and they're still sitting on the, the new album, which nobody's heard. But we've told them, look, we got a ton of new material. You know, our creativity doesn't stop. And so they're giving, they've said, go in the studio, cut another album. We'll release that in the beginning of next year. So, you know, it's a, it's, we're trying to make lemonade out of a serious lemon that we've all been dealt, you know, this past year. And uh, so I'm excited. I'm really excited about everything. I, I would fully agree with you. I mean, that's the only way to do it, right? To move forward and plan ahead and, and yeah. be optimistic. And I'm excited for the immediate family record. I was just kind of um, immersing myself in the section uh, yeah. earlier today and yesterday. And, you know, I, I put it on and I, I've sometimes I put some music on, I go into the shower. I want to keep hearing some, and it gets really, gets really, really experimental. And, and that's what I love. You know, sometimes you're on Spotify I don't know if you subscribe to Spotify at all, yeah. but it'll change the track on you to a different artist. And like, you'll be like, who is this? But it's not actually the, the same artist, right? Yeah. Um, in this case, it went from one song to another and then to something completely like offbeat and ex <laughs> way more experimental. I thought it was something, somebody else. So I look at it as I said, the section, it's like, holy moly, like there's so much to do within the confines of in, in, in being in an instrumental band. Yeah. Right? How do you get comfortable? How do you lay down a, a bass track in a, in a song like that, where it's like, okay, the drummer's playing uh, this type of beat. This is the feel I get. How does it fit with the music? Um, how do you get comfortable? Well, first off, the thing that was great was even though it was really early on in our relationship as a group, um, you know, cause we, like I said, we came together with James Taylor and within two years i think we did the first section album um but what we did was we had a there was a um you know like all over los angeles there's these kind of industrial malls where there's like lots of little shops in them and we rented one of those and we would go at night when everybody else was closed down and we would just play every night and uh, we had an old sony um uh, cassette player that had built-in condenser mics and we would set it in the middle of the room and recorded everything we did. And then we would sit and listen to the stuff and we would build the songs out of jams and, and stuff like that. Um, but we were, the thing I think that's most cr critical and the best advice I can give to other players is listen to what the other people are doing. You know, when you're in a band, it's not about you, it's about the band. And like when I'm playing, I, I'm, I'm so focused on what Russ Kunkel's doing, you know, where, where Danny Korchmar was taking it melodically or what's the section we had, Craig Durge was our keyboard player. And, and we just, we became like one mind through, through just playing together and listening to each other and knowing each other so well musically. And um, 
so it, 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 it really evolved very organically. It wasn't like any kind of premeditated stuff. Nobody was sitting down with coming in with charts or anything. Everything was really um, created sort of on, on, on the fly. And the thing that was good was we could document it all by recording everything we were doing so that, you know, like the next day, rather than sitting and going, God, what was that thing we did yesterday? You know, we could play it and go, oh, God, let's I had an idea for a bridge kind of thing, you know, and, and it would just keep evolving. Uh, the hard part for us was that I think when we got signed to our record deal, we got signed because of all the people we worked with. And I think they uh, Warner Brothers, which was our first we did two albums for Warners and then one for Capital. And I think their expectation was they were going to be getting like james taylor meets the eagles kind of a thing and all of a sudden you know we hand him over a record that's like rock fusion instrumental music and i don't think they knew what the hell to do with it but we had a, a great time we had was we ended up opening uh touring and opening for mahavishnu orchestra um for about six weeks and that was an unbelievable experience and it was through that that i became friends with billy cobham so when billy got his first deal uh, to do Spectrum, he called me and he said, would you come to New York and work on the record? And I said, absolutely. And we did that basically that whole record in two days. It's like almost one take of every song. And and the one of the highlights of that was I'd been on the road with, with you know, uh, Jan Hammer and, and Billy Cobham on that tour. But when I was in Wolfgang, we were managed by a guy who had another act called Zephyr. And Tommy Boland was the guitarist in Zephyr. So when I walked in to Billy's session and there's Tommy, I hadn't seen Tommy in years. And we had like a great, you know, reunion. And Tommy was probably one of the baddest ass guitar players I've ever known in my life. You know, he died way too, it was only I think 26 or 28 when he died. Um, but, you know, he played with Deep Purple and with James Gang and all kinds of stuff. But man, it's a, you know, look, great memories tons of memories it's incredible like your your career has spanned over decades and it's just maybe maybe time flew really fast for you but you love what you're doing and, and it yeah. seems you're very i, I think you're, you're one of those people who sits back and and that you enjoy what's going on and then you lay your bass track and it's you're very a very humble person and i'm very happy to finally have met you after all these years of you know watching you play and hearing your, your songs um, that you've collaborated with people. Yeah. I, I would say that the section record, it's great. Uh, you're right. Maybe the, the record label was hoping to have a song featuring James Taylor or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, they um, were hoping <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe now with all this uh, drum and bass and remix stuff, they can probably put something in there, uh, make a little remix about it, but yeah, but, but we'll see. Um, when was the last time you, you seen yourself, cleanly shaven uh 1965 when they handed me my high school diploma wow i mean i cut it all the time just because it, it, if i let it keep going it'll be in my base and you know and you, you go to take your base off and you get your beard cut and your strap locks it's not really comfortable <laughs> it's like but no nah, i just uh you know it was one of those things that i when i was in in high school it was a pretty repressive time in Los Angeles with schools. They had grooming guards, you know, there was like real serious kind of conservative mentality. 
you know, if you had any kind of, I, I drive by a high school now and I see kids, you know, with beards and long hair, guys, you know, and I go, man, that's like the antithesis of what I went to school with. So, but I just, man, when they handed me the diploma, I just said, I am done with your rules and this bullshit. I am out of here. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, I've been married 50 years and my wife still never seen me clean shaven. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> I, my, my, my wife asked me to shave my face once to see what it would look like and then after that she just left me alone yeah she, grow it back grow yeah. it <laughs> you become a, a completely different person and plus yeah. your your face either looks bigger or smaller and um it's very hard to eat with a beard as well and, well you, uh, you you develop a methodology to yeah things it's like every morning i start off with like a i make myself like a power smoothie but i learned a long time ago use a straw you know, if you go like this, the next thing you know, it's like running down your face and stuff. So, you know, I, I just keep a nice metal straw. I don't I don't want any kind of plastic crap. You know, I have a nice, nice metal straw that I can suck a smoothie through. And uh, so you, 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 you make compromises in your life of all kinds of things. And, you know, if you're going to commit to a beard, uh, you have to commit to a certain uh, protocol. Um, for things but it sure has saved me a lot of grief every morning i get up and i just kind of pretend i've gone to the poodle parlor and i just give a little fluff and fold and i'm out the door yeah so, who, who needs razors anymore right like oh that. yeah well when i was a kid too when i shaved when i was young um my dad uh taught me how to use a straight razor and and how to strop it on leather and and I mean, I mean, that's if you're going to shave, that is the ultimate shave when you know how to do that, man. You, your face feels like a baby's butt, man. It is, you know, just amazing. Um, but it's almost like a Japanese tea ceremony, you know, sitting there, you know, with the leather, getting that that edge on that blade and everything. So so forget it. <laughs> I'm just looking like this. This is it. <laughs> Done deal. It's all right. You come as you are. That's how. Uh... Yeah. The Nirvana song uh, preaches yeah. to us. Um, finally, the question I want to ask you: uh, It's about coffee. Do you drink coffee? How do you take your coffee? I do not drink coffee. You don't? Huh? No. I mean, I've, it's been a weird co career for me. Um, I've never done drugs. I've never drank. I never smoked. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink tea. That's that's kind of. And I, I was working in. I was in uh, on tour with Toto, and we were in in uh, Colombia, South America, and uh, we were uh, playing in Bogota. And one of the great producers I worked with for for years, uh, English producer Andrew Luke Oldham, who did like the early Stones records and all kinds of stuff. He had moved down to to Bogota, and he lived there, and did a he has a remote radio show he does from there. But we hooked up. I invited him to the concert and everything. But we got together in the afternoon and he said, uh, you like coffee? And I said, well, not really. I'm not a coffee drinker. And he said, well, you got to come here with me. And there was a little coffee store in uh, in Bogota that apparently these people have a tiny plantation. It's a it's a super kind of exclusive uh, coffee. And I got about it. I love the smell of coffee. Um, I, I got about a block from their shop and it was the most intoxicating thing I've ever smelled. And he said, you, we got to go in there. And he got himself. Some, and uh, I ended up buying a, a pound of, uh, of beans, of their beans. 
and they freeze dried them so I could take them home and everything. Cause my wife likes coffee. So we got a little, you know, grinder and a French press for her uh, to really do it right. But I tried it, you know, I, the, the, the smell was amazing. And as soon as I tasted it, I was like, nah, not for me, my palate just doesn't like it. You're, you're a straight base kind of guy. I am. It, I make Ozzy Nelson look like Ozzy Desaad, you know. I mean, it's my, I'm, I'm like, I, I think some of the stuff too. I, I think one of the things that always appealed to me about bass is there's a certain psychology to it, a certain responsibility that comes with that instrument. You know, you generally you're the guy that's in the, you know, with the drums in the back of the stage, and you let the singer and guitar players and guys, you know, work the front of the stage, and occasionally during a set you might come up and do something. And then you can recede back. And I kind of like that position of just like being the foundation for everything and holding it together. And I, I know a lot of times I'd be on the road and like it would be like dinner time and everybody's out eating and they'd come back in the dressing room and I'd be sitting there with headphones on working on songs. And they'd go, how come you're always doing this? And I would look at them and i go, at the end of the day, there's only one guy on stage who actually has to know what the downbeats are. And that's me. Drummer can hit anything. I mean, it's not, you're not committing to a chord. Um, but I said, you know, keyboards, guitars, if, the, if you're not sure what's going on, you can always lay out for a second and then throw in a lick and look like a genius. But I said that, you know, as a bass player, I really have to know the stuff. So I, I tend to put in a lot of hours in, in concentration and focus. Like when I went out with Toto, I only had five days to learn their show. And um, and it was, that's not a jam band. That, that, that music was not easy, but uh, Mike Picaro was so gravely ill at that point that, you know, he called and said, can you take over? And, uh, and so I really, I worked my ass off to learn that set. And, uh, and the first gig we did was we flew to Dubai and did the Dubai Jazz Festival. So um, just my nature. I don't think there's anyone more dependable on bass that I could think of than you. And that's seriously coming you know, from my heart as kind of weird as it sounds, like a guy saying that to another guy. But uh, you know what? It's It's been an amazing career, and I really wish you uh, many more thousands of opportunities. And Thank you. Um, you know, it's just going to get better and better, I think, because I know a lot of people really respect you, and I, I, I think – you you've built that just from being yourself and 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 being kind of like the cool guy in the room who's just he's humble and he's open-minded and yeah. uh of course you know he loves he loves what he does and and yeah. that's that's what's i think what's taken you all the way 50 plus years into it you know and um by the way you know i i wanted to shave a lot and i i, must, I just don't look i just don't look good you know it's like Go, going back to it, it just why yeah, there's just no reason to, you know. I mean, it, it's like the stuff's there. It's you know why why hide it? I mean, yeah, I'm not telling everybody to go grow a beard, but I mean, it's like it, it's for so many people, it becomes such a dilemma. You know, should I do this? Or everybody's telling me to shave that, and then the minute they shave, everybody's going, "Oh no, grow it back!" You look back. <laughs> it's like it, it's it's you know you know the thing is, if you cut it off, it can grow back if you don't, you know, if you decide you want it back. Yeah, whatever. It's like, all right. Once again, uh, fan room live is where Leland Sklar will be next Thursday, March the fourth. 
Uh, get your tickets now. It's an intimate experience uh, to meet Leland Scholar and a- ask a few questions as well and get your answers back. I mean, and, it's, it, well- and it's going to be clothing optional, apparently. So, you know, really, let's have some fun. Yeah, don't don't tell Ken Davidian that because he already he's looking for another nude role in Hollywood. Um, he played Azamat in uh, Borat, so yeah, you might have to pop in for that. Well, you know, it, if I was going to have somebody be naked on it, it, that that would be the cat to have. <laughs> Maybe your prayers will be answered. So, well, let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Take it's care. An absolute pleasure, Jordan. Man, anytime. Anytime, I'd be happy to come back.